I'm Stephanie Lemick, and this is Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. I'm so excited and grateful to be wrapping up the first season of our podcast. And to celebrate that fact, we are going to be doing a wrap-up episode, but actually it's going to be in two parts. So two episodes to highlight some of the amazing information and amazing guests who have been on the first season of this podcast. So today we will be highlighting information, conversations, guests from the first seven episodes of the podcast. And next week you can check out part two of our highlights episode where we will do the back half of this first season. As we kick off, wanna make sure and offer a content warning for this podcast. We will be referencing experiences of trauma, the COVID-19 pandemic, we make references to death of loved ones. We also make references to childhood sexual abuse and sexual assault overall. So please keep this in mind. And as always, make sure you're taking care of yourself first. So if you do not have the space to hear any of that right now, maybe save the podcast for another time or skip it altogether. So without further ado, let's get started and we'll kick off with highlights from our first episode of Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. Trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has lasting effects on functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. It's helpful to think about, for a definition of trauma, the three E's of trauma, event, experience, and effect. Let's talk about why organizations should care about trauma. I like to start by thinking of this analogy. Each of us has a suitcase that we bring with us to work. And in that suitcase is all of our knowledge, experience, education, skills, and know-how. It's exactly the reason why, why we've been hired to join the team. That suitcase also includes all of our lived experience. And for so many of us, that lived experience includes experiences of trauma. In fact, according to the National Council for Mental Wellbeing, at least 70% of U.S. adults self-identify as having one or more traumatic experience in their lifetime. Now add in the traumatic experiences of spouses, children, parents, and loved ones. Your team is absolutely filled with people who are experiencing the impacts of trauma in their life, and absolutely that is showing up at work. How can you create trauma-informed workplaces? Obviously, there is some education and awareness that's super important to happen throughout the organization. So that is a key part. But how do we get to avoiding traumatizing and re-traumatizing members of your team? Well, we rely on the principles of trauma-informed cultures. In our first episode, we introduced the seven principles of trauma-informed workplaces. And of course, if you've been listening, you know we go on to dive more deeply in each of those seven principles throughout the season. And so we dive into our second episode highlights next, where we talk about the first principle. 
most of us have probably spoken about safety at work, pretty common, but probably we haven't addressed safety holistically or looked at safety as what I like to refer to it as a three-legged stool, where safety really is about physical safety. So the safety of your physical person, occupational safety is included in that, safety and security is included in that, psychological safety, so feeling of that psychological safety and trust at work. And then finally, financial safety. So are you financially safe in both the short and long term? And all three of those things are really that stool of holistic safety when we think about safety for individuals and safety as we tackle it in the workplace. Our first guest to the podcast was my dear friend, Adia Sikita. She is a doctor of nursing practice and infectious disease, and she was kind enough to join us and share her experiences as a medical professional, wife, mother, granddaughter, caregiver during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here are some highlights from that conversation. It was really interesting uh, in the very beginning days, the very early days, we were all kind of chatting behind the scenes of, amongst ourselves. You know, I work in infectious diseases. I have a lot of um, very well-renowned physicians that I work with, and we're all kind of chatting. We're like, what do you think is going to happen? What do you What do you think is coming? What do you guys think is going to happen? And, um, you know, we certainly all knew years before that there was a possibility that there would be some type of virus that was able to mutate, um, that was novel to humans, that we would have no natural immunity against, and there certainly was always a possibility of a worldwide pandemic. And so we all knew very, like, very realistically that this was something that could very quickly spin out of control. We began to make space in our units. And so, for example, right outside of our office area um, is one of our medical ICUs. And it's typically full. It's typically completely full. And so one of the most striking things that I remember is walking back to my office through this medical ICU, and it was completely empty. The lights were off. And um, all of the doors had these stacks of personal equipment, uh, personal protective equipment, like outside of them. Everything was all set up and, and ready, ready. And it was just eerily quiet, but we knew it was coming. And I remember we all stopped and I said, let's just sit here for a minute. So it was my attending Dr. Quill um, and two of the nurse practitioners I work with, Jen and Caspi. And we all just kind of sat there and just like soaked in the most eerily quiet. It's not going to be like this in a few weeks. We didn't know what it was going to look like, but we knew it wouldn't continue to look like this. When I think about, you know, medical professionals, folks caring for the people who are very sick and, mm -hmm. and unfortunately the many people who died during the pandemic, I think about the stress and the toll of the actual practicing of medicine, mm -hmm. not about everything else. Mm -hmm. And I mean, hearing you talk, and I'm sure others' experiences are different, but hearing you talk, it's the everything else mm -hmm. that really took the greatest toll. I think it did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I put on my protective equipment. I go into the patient's rooms. I take it off. I, you know, wash my hands and then I go home to my family. And I've just never really worried about it too much. Um, and certainly I, I did have a little bit of extra level of anxiety with the, the coronavirus. I think we all did. And my husband and I, so of course, our, everything shut down in March and, you know, all the schools went remote. And my husband and I actually made the decision to send our girls to his parents' house in Oklahoma. And they were there actually for a couple months. Um, so my children weren't home. They, they were someplace that I felt was safe. Yeah. And to be honest, that was a, 
um, it was a big stress relief. I yeah. knew that they were being well taken care of. Of course, I missed them. Yeah. So uh, this is where a lot of, I think, emotional trauma happens as a society is that we weren't allowed to participate, to grieve, to celebrate um, events that we all hold sacred and dear to ourselves, correct? Right. And so um, the trauma from missing out on that, I think, is something that we can all identify with. And so I knew that if he went to a skilled nursing facility, you know, that his prognosis was basically he would probably continue to have these many strokes and eventually he would pass away. But I knew if he went to a school nursing facility, that would be it. We wouldn't be allowed to visit him. And he would think, you know, he he, he was mentally altered, but still very much my grandfather. <laughs> but he would think that we had basically abandoned him. And I was having I just this horrible time coping with that. And I remember uh, laying on the floor of my bathroom, just like just screaming, you know, like in like rage, like um, grief that this was happening because this shouldn't be the, this shouldn't be the case, you know. Right. Um, and so. I picked myself up off the floor and I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take him home. He's not going to his governor's thing, but something he's going to come home. Initially he did well and was, you know, but we all, my, I guess my point is that we all got extra time. Yeah. We all got extra time with him um, that we wouldn't, and I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I always forget that I was experiencing the pandemic as a healthcare professional, but I was also going through it on a very, a human level. Yeah. A very human level as well. And, and I think that was, that was one of the most, you know, the, one of the hardest things is that he, he didn't have the care that he needed to have. Yeah. Um, but the alternative wasn't acceptable. So I think as far as compassion and fatigue, you know, it's just, it's very difficult. Uh, as healthcare providers, I think we always sort of disassociate ourselves a little bit. It's the protective mechanism that we all have. And, you know, um, you try not to get too emotionally involved with your mm -hmm. patients. Yeah. Um, but it's difficult, uh, you know, in December of 21, um, my grandpa passed away, uh, which was very sad, but we all knew we all had seen that coming through. So he passed away December 7th of, uh, 2020 mm -hmm. and we had a funeral for him. And I remember my coworkers being upset that I went to the funeral, yeah. um, because they were like, they're going to get COVID. Like, we're all going to wear masks. We're all going to like do our best, but like we have to go through this grieving process of the collective, like healing. You know, we need to have this collective grieving process. We need to go through this as a family and say mm -hmm. goodbye to my grandpa and honor the person that he was to all of us. And this is how we begin to heal, right? Is this is what we do as a society? Is mm -hmm. we lay our dead to rest, we grieve them, we celebrate them, um, we give each other emotional support, and this is how we deal with death typically. Um, after the funeral, they had this, you know, we do, we bring food, right? Yeah. We bring food, um, at my grandmother's apartment. And so a bunch of families were there. And so my daughters and I went, we had our masks on and I look around and everyone's eating and chatting and smiling and laughing and no one's wearing a mask. So I said to my girls, I'm like, I'm sorry, we have to go. Um, and my, I remember my grandmother saying, oh, you better come say, you haven't even said hi to me. Come say hi to me. And I remember giving her a hug and saying, I'm sorry, Grandma, I can't uh, sorry. Um, I can't be here right now. No one's wearing a mask and I have to go. Um, we found out a couple days later that uh, several people in my family had COVID, including her. And of course, <laughs> she's in her 80s. And um, she very quickly got very sick. And I never saw her. Uh, I, I was able, I was able because... Um, I'm a uniquely privileged healthcare provider. Right. Um, perhaps unfairly to see her 
again, but not in a, you know, she was dying when I saw her again. Yeah. And so she passed away um, the first week in January. She passed away January 2nd. Through the such my grandfather passed away. And um, so I remember, you know, being into her hospital room and the, the whole floor was just completely overwhelmed um, with patients like her who were dying. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the staff did everything they could to keep her comfortable, you know, morphine for air hunger, et cetera. And I, I do believe that she passed away very comfortably. But it's hard not to see every patient yeah. in, in your loved one. And so you would know, like, you know, when patients are turning the corner. And so we take care. Uh, I, I feel like in our, our practice, we have, we know our patients pretty well. Mm-hmm. You'd see them start to turn the corner and you just know that nothing was going to make them better. And so for me, you know, for me personally, I would go into their rooms to examine them as you do in the morning before rounds. And uh, I would just, you know, I'd take a minute and I would hold their hand and I mm-hmm. would just be like, I would, say a prayer. Yeah, I would say a prayer for them. I don't know if I'm religious or not. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you would, I would just take it and I would hold their hand. And I, and I would just, I knew they were probably going to die. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to have that minute of someone, like, caring for them as a person. Yeah. And not just as a patient. Of course, I care for them as a patient. But I wanted them to have, even if they didn't know, even if they were sedated and didn't know, I wanted to just give them that minute of, of humanity. In episode four of the podcast, we introduce the second principle of trauma-informed workplaces, trust and transparency. As we look to build trauma-informed cultures, we also need to understand the importance of trust within and throughout organizations and how we can build trust within and among different teams. What's great about trust and transparency being principles of trauma-informed workplaces is they also have great statistics as they relate to overall benefits to workplace cultures in general. So in addition to being part of building a workplace that is trauma-informed and everyone can be successful, building trust in your organization has some other great measurable benefits. Organizations that have significant levels of trust are, generally speaking, 76% more engaged. Employees have 13% fewer sick days. There's 40% less burnout in high-trust organizations and a 66% increase in team unity. The amazing Christy Paludic joined us for the fifth episode of the podcast to share her experience in supporting survivors of traumatic experiences. So often we focus on how trauma-informed workplaces can support those who've experienced traumatic experiences. But these workplaces and these environments also support those who are busy supporting others. Here are some highlights from this important conversation. So I grew up in a pretty vanilla, pretty boring, you know, beaver the cleaver family sort of a deal, right? Uh, Parents still married 53 years later, you know, 2.0 kids, right? Always had a dog in the house. Grand scheme of things, like not a whole lot, right? We went through life middle class in the Northwest kind of doing our thing. And, you know, 
fast forward, meet my husband, right? And we've been married now, just celebrated our 23rd anniversary. Oh, wow. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, And when we met pretty early on in our relationship, he had shared that he is sexually abused by his half brother. And at the time, and he kind of went through it and I was like, okay, that's really shitty. I'm sorry that happened. Um, Okay, let's move on. Right. And in all reality, that for the vast majority of our marriage was just kind of, you know, there'd be some familial struggles, some this, that, or the other, some ups and downs, but not a whole lot of conversation around it until recently. I think there's been a lot of, for me, desire to know more, right? To know more of my husband's history and not the nitty gritty details, right? Like, but yet kind of, I wanted to, you know, to be there and be a support, but with him specifically, and for most men that are survivors of particularly sexual abuse or what have you, and for him, it happened for so, when he was so young and for so long, and he had some additional abuse later on, um, there's a significant amount of shame and a significant amount of un, not even unwilling, but just kind of that unable to share some of his past and some of his story. And so really I've learned more of his story in these past few years than I ever did in the first, you know, 15, 20 years of our marriage. And so there's this desire to know and to be there and to be that resource. And kind of, it sucked not being there, right? Like it, I felt hurt because I wanted to be his go-to person. Like I got you, I can hold you up, right? Like I want to be there for you and I want you to be there for me. And he was filled with so much shame that that was really hard. I want to have a conversation. I want people to feel comfortable sharing with me. That's all about me, right? Mm -hmm. That's not fair to put on other people, particularly survivors, particularly about something that, you know, experiences that can be so shameful and they've likely been carrying around for years and then wrapped up real tight and real safe. And so it was really through conversations with my husband and we were in a couples therapy session at one point and the, our therapist was using an analogy of me chasing my husband around a tree right? Pursue, 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 pursue. And he started like running around the tree. And I'm like, no, but I can get you. Tell me I wanted more information. Right. (laughs) And my husband's like, essentially like, I hate being chased around a tree. And I'm like, I don't like running around a tree. Uh None of us like this, but all of a sudden it became so clear to me, stop chasing someone around a tree. In this case, my husband, right. Take that step back. If you will, to carry this analogy a little further, lay out a picnic blanket, grab a snack and say, Hey, I'm here when you're ready. Whatever that looks like. And all of a sudden, the stress and the pressure of having to share or having to hold it in just started dropping. Stephanie, I grew up um, until really not that long ago thinking that people who went to therapists were trying to fix something that they were broken, right? Like, it was a, a remediation. You went to a doctor, you tried to fix something. Shame on me, right? I, right? And to everybody else out there listening that thinks that, that's not the case. Sorry to burst that bubble. But therapists are there to provide support, to be that resource. And as my husband was going through some of the hardest times of his life, um, of navigating and processing a lot of memories that came flooding back, 
to not have him there to necessarily support me because he's trying to work on supporting himself to be able to have someone to go to to help me process that and to help say hey christy you're doing a really great job i'm really proud of you this is really hard and to be able to get that support and validation is like empower a little sad and empowering to be like yes okay i got this and now i can continue to go back and be a good wife and mom and partner and so forth and so trust your trust your partner trust that person that you want to go talk with right that you that you love and you care about that they love and care about you as well uh you know for my husband there are some details he didn't share some later abuse that he experienced that he didn't want to share with me for fear that i would leave right is a short story that i would think less of him um, and that's not the case. I felt, if anything, the opposite. I, my heart swelled, right? We all know like the, the Dr. Seuss, right? And the Grinch heart swelling, um, that there was things that he was holding back, right? And I could only imagine what that meant for him to hold back and to be able to be there for him just filled me with some joy and love for him. Whatever boundaries, physical, mental, emotional, that you can create to share just a, a little, right? Because a little can lead to a little bit more and a little bit more. Think about what's going to keep you feeling safe. And then even if you're in the moment, even if you set up all of the things, right, and have the conversation, and you're not there, and you're not ready, that's okay, Give yourself that grace to say, hey, I know we talked about it, but I'm not ready. Maybe next time. Let's highlight another principle of trauma-informed workplaces. The third principle, community. The U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, released a report earlier this year, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, highlighting, among other things, that even before the COVID-19 pandemic, around half of American adults reported experiencing measurable loneliness. So while Dr. Murthy's work is not directly connected to trauma-informed workplaces, it certainly goes hand in hand when we think about building community and supports within the workplace. So where we use the term community and think about building and fostering community in workplaces, draw directly to trauma-informed care principles, that would go to peer support. What that is, is peer support is someone who has been or currently is in a similar situation as you, being there to provide support, reinforcement, kind of shared experience. So we also want to think about that as we consider the concept of community in the workplace. When we discuss community at work, we're looking at how the workplace supports the essential human need of social support and belonging. So directly supports those feelings of community, need for support, need for belonging. And considering the amount of time the majority of adults spend working, positive, meaningful relationships at work are really important in creating that overall feeling of social support. We'll wrap up part one of our highlights episode with 
highlights from one of the most amazing conversations we had this year on the podcast. Of course, if you've been following along, you know I am absolutely a Katherine Manning superfan. Katherine is a former victim's rights advocate who does trauma-informed work and also is the author of The Empathetic Workplace. Here are some highlights from that conversation. People all have very different um, expectations in their mind about what counts as trauma. There are some people who basically it's you're if you're not a sexual assault survivor or a combat veteran, like you have not experienced trauma. Um, I use a definition in my work that is, again, very practical. Um, try to make it easy to remember. Um, and it is kind of a slimmed down version of the SAMHSA definition, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Association definition. The definition of trauma I use is that it's a psychological injury that affects your performance. What I like about the SAMHSA definition is that in contrast to a lot of others, it doesn't give you a list of life experiences and say, if you've experienced one of these, you've experienced trauma. Because the reality is we're all very different in our reactions to some or even the exact same event. <laughs> you know, what actually inspired me, the real answer is me too, but in a negative way. Me too. <laughs> I, when me too happened in 2018, I was on the one hand thrilled because I thought these are such important issues and I'm so glad that people are having these conversations. But also I was frustrated by Me Too because I felt like Me Too put so much on survivors. Yes. You got to share your story. Everybody needs to hear your story. I'm sure this was happening to you too. I was getting texts from friends who were like, is, you know, do I have to tell my story? I've never told anybody before. And, but if I don't, I feel like I'm letting down the side. <laughs> and like you, I was like, no, you do not owe your story to anybody. I felt like Me Too Really, it, it did a really good job of opening up the conversation, but it didn't, um, I just felt like it put too much on survivors. Like you have to share your story without an understanding that when somebody shares their story with you, you have an obligation to listen in a certain way and provide support. And I also knew because I had been doing this work in the criminal system for so long, I knew that you could conduct a full, thorough, fair investigation in a way that was still supportive of the survivors who were sharing their stories. It didn't mean you had to just take at face value everything that everybody said, which I think was often the pushback. And one of the things I saw in this time period was that a lot of us struggle to respond correctly, appropriately when somebody shares their story. Usually we just want to shut down the conversation as quickly as possible, right? You know, somebody comes in and you can tell they're upset and you just think, oh my goodness, how do I get out of this situation? That's part of why I, I thought it would be helpful for people to have a bit of a roadmap to follow. I know that it can be difficult in those moments. Frankly, even still for me, um, sometimes people will disclose things where I just feel like, oh my gosh, I feel like I've been punched in the stomach. And it takes me a second to kind of pull my head together and, and show up in the way that the person needs me to. It's helpful to have um, a map to follow in those moments. You go into great detail about the laser method, which I think is phenomenal. And again, I think helps really make this book something that can be very directly applied to someone's day-to-day, -day, directly to someone's work. It's just, these are five things that you should aim to do in a conversation uh, with somebody at work who is coming to you for support.
Step one is listen. And step two, uh, I think is really important and often missed, and that's acknowledging what they have shared with you. So acknowledgement is just a quick statement that shows that we heard them. You can just say, thanks for sharing that. Or that sounds really hard. I'm really sorry for everything you've been going through. Third step is share information. And this again comes from the work with victims and that sense of everything feels out of control right now. Knowledge is power. So when we share information with people, we help them regain a sense of control. The fourth step is empower. And this is about getting the person to resources that they want and are will find helpful. Um, it's also about boundary setting. A lot of us are fixers. We want to make it better when we see somebody who's in pain. Um, remember that your job is not to fix it. It is to empower them to get to the, the right solution for them. Last step is return, which is both literally a return to the person to check in on them later, let them know that you're still um, a source of support for them. And also importantly, it's a return to ourselves. You don't have to get it right every time. Uh, if you care and are, um, are trying to help, that will come across. So don't worry so much that you're going to mess it up. Obviously, try to do your best. Try to show up and be authentic and sincere for the person. But don't shy away from the conversations because you're afraid of messing up. It is better to have the conversation and flub it than to not say anything at all to somebody who is struggling. Institutional betrayal, I think, is so important to understand because I think sometimes people think, well, why does a workplace have to be trauma-informed? That workplaces seem like they're separate from uh, the kinds of mental health supports and, and wellness things that would come up when we're talking about trauma. But institutional betrayal, I think, helps explain why it's so important that workplaces understand trauma and do their best to prevent and mitigate trauma. Institutional betrayal is a psychological concept that comes out of the work of Dr. Jennifer Fried. That's F-R-E-Y-D. She was formerly with the University of Oregon. The way that the concept was explained to me um, by uh, Dr. Anda Prince, who studied under Dr. Fried, is how I, I will explain it to you, which is with a series of hypotheticals. So first, imagine a child who has been abused by a parent. There may be physical injury from that abuse, say bruising, but then on top of that physical injury, there's a psychological injury from the fact that the child was hurt by someone that he looks to for support and protection. That psychological injury can last far longer than the physical one. So long after the bruises have faded, that psychological injury remains. Next, imagine a student on a college campus who is sexually assaulted and she goes to her campus Title IX coordinator to report the assault. And instead of being supportive, the Title IX coordinator minimizes what she went through or implies that it was her fault. Obviously, she will have the underlying injury from the assault. But now on top of that, she has a second injury. Um, from the institution that she aligns herself with and looks to for support and protection, the institution of the university and the person of this Title IX coordinator has betrayed her, her trust relationship with them. And according to Dr. Fried's work, that is a second cognizable injury, and it can be 
long lasting, both in terms of individual healing and in terms of their relationship with the institution. Thank you for tuning in for this highlight episode, part one. Next week, we'll be sharing highlights from the last seven episodes of our podcast. So make sure and tune in for that. If you are interested in learning more or hearing more for any of these episodes, if you maybe missed out or just want to revisit them, make sure and go back and listen on any of the platforms that work best for you. They will be available to you um, to peruse at your leisure. Until next time, be well.